All right, we're in Matthew. We're continuing in Matthew. We have just started uh, this year going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to spend as long as we need to going through Matthew. So right now we're in chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to chapter 3. If you don't have one, we actually have some extras sitting on the bar back there. So if you would like one of those, you can just raise your hand and we'll give you one. If you need help finding Matthew 3, then you can also raise your hand and somebody would be happy to help you. Um, We're going to pick up this morning right where we left off. Um, There's not really much of a break between the events that we talked about last week and the events that that we're going to talk about this week. So uh, with that in mind, I think it would be helpful, especially if we weren't here last week, to to just read through the whole chapter so that we kind of get the context and we know what's going on. It's not a really long chapter, so don't worry too much. Uh, So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region all about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When... He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Let's just take a break for a second. So uh, let me just recap what's going on here. So after, after more than 400 years, without a word from God, John the Baptist comes as a prophet preaching in the wilderness to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. Uh, His coming, his coming and preaching and being a prophet is the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament about the spirit of Elijah coming to prepare the way for their Savior, the Messiah. Matthew describes John the Baptist uh, by quoting a a verse from the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He proclaiming to everybody that they needed to prepare the way to make his paths straight. John was preaching out there to the entire Jewish nation, saying that they needed to get ready because this promised Messiah was coming. He was coming soon. And and this Messiah would be a source of salvation for which the Jews had been waiting for these hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, longer than 400 years. John called everybody 
to prepare for this coming king, their coming king, by repenting of their sin, you see that in the verses, turning to God and getting baptized as a way of showing that they wanted God to cleanse them of their unrighteousness. So that's what he was, he was telling them to do, encouraging them to do. And the reception to his message, is when people heard what he had to say, some people listened and some people didn't. Many people did listen. They confessed their sins. It said there in verse 6, they confessed their sins. They repented. They got baptized. And things were going well in a lot of cases. But then some people, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, opposed John's message. And they actually came out to, to confront him. They were picking a fight with him. They did not agree. So he responds to them, in essence, by saying, don't think that you're in some sort of privileged position because of who your ancestors are. You are in need of salvation as much as anybody else. And, and you need to repent. He's saying this to the leaders. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John also reminded them of the, that the coming Messiah wasn't just coming to provide salvation and redemption and to reign as king. He was going to do those things, but he was also coming to judge between those who committed themselves to God and those who did not. So he warned them that the Messiah would become, and he uses this visual, he's, he, that he would be coming bringing an axe, ready to cut down any tree, any person that didn't bear the fruit of a life that had been changed by God. So that's kind of the setup here. John the Baptist is out there providing this ministry, and they, we see this confrontation happen. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. This has got to be one of the shortest turnaround times in history for the fulfillment of a prophecy. Like, he's out there preaching, telling them, hey, the Messiah's coming, get ready. And then what happens? Like, literally, the Messiah walks up. It would be hard, I think, to be skeptical of John's prophetic ministry after that happened. Like, what are you going to say? You're not really a prophet. Well, it just happened. This just happened. And you have to wonder, after this whole event... If the Pharisees are thinking, kind of like nervously leaning into each other, like, you see an axe on this guy anywhere? It's like, <laughs> it's interesting, I think, for a number of reasons that Jesus came to John to be baptized. For one, the, th the first thing that sticks out to me as we're just kind of comparing, going from um, those first several verses to the last several, um, the comparison, the contrast that you see here that is set up between Jesus and the Pharisees. I think that it's worth noting. So the Pharisees, these were, again, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the Jewish religious leaders who uh, they saw themselves as deserving of salvation. Like they thought that they had earned it because of their ancestry. They, they thought that, you know, we're descendants of Abraham, so we are Jews, we are God's people. And because of the religious rules that they worked really, really hard to keep, harder than anybody, obviously, like people could see them trying to go day in and day out observing the minutest rule, the smallest rule. They would try to keep these rules, and they worked really hard, and they took pride in that. 
And they thought, if anybody deserves salvation, it's got to be us, because we're the ones who are treating this as though it's serious. So they, they thought, because of their ancestry, because of their, their work, that they deserved this. They saw themselves as the chosen people of God. And, and they saw themselves as righteous, because they served in the synagogues. They studied the Old Testament. They taught everybody else about what the Word of God actually said. So when, when John comes preaching to the Jews, even if not especially to the religious leaders, telling them they need to repent of their sin, and they need to commit themselves to this ritual washing that symbolized their turning to God, they thought he was maybe misinformed at best and an opponent of God. At worst. Because in their minds, they were already cleansed. They were already righteous. They had already earned salvation. So this is all happening. And in the next, in the next verse, Jesus walks up into the midst of this. Jesus, who is being proclaimed as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you would think that if anybody had any reason to not get baptized, it would be Jesus. He didn't need the baptism. He was perfect. He was without sin. And yet he came to John for this exact reason. He actually walked like 40 miles from his house just for this. It's a long walk. Like he was very intentional about coming down here to do this thing. And so you note the contrast. These guys who think they've earned it. And then they say, I don't need that. And then Jesus, who doesn't really even need it, and says, I'm going to submit to this. That's very interesting. So he walks up to John, and John is a little confused by his request. When, he, when Jesus comes up and he says, I need to be baptized, John's thinking, really? You need to be baptized? Uh, because I'm out here calling people to repent and to demonstrate their repentance through baptism, uh, but, but you're the Messiah, and you don't need to repent. You don't need to be cleansed and made righteous. I, I need to be baptized by you. Like, let's just get that over with first, and then whatever. I think, that, I think that when John the Baptist brings this up, I think his heart is in the right place when he says, I, I need to be baptized by you. Because He's, he's submitting to Jesus in, in saying this. And he's recognizing Jesus as, as who Jesus says he is, the Messiah. And he's admitting his own need for cleansing, for, for redemption. And so Jesus comes up to him and he says, I'm, I'm out here preaching to all these people, but I'm a broken person. I need this salvation that I'm preaching as much as anybody. And I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And I think that the heart of that 
is correct. Like, in one sense, he was absolutely correct to ask for this. He did need to be baptized by Jesus. In the sense that Jesus' baptism was different. It wasn't just dunking in the water as like a symbolic way of saying, I'm turning to God. Jesus' baptism was different, and he talked about that. How it was baptism in the Spirit. Like, this was a much more effective kind of baptism that Jesus was bringing, and he was right to ask for it. And it was something that he couldn't, he couldn't do for himself, and he knew that. However, in this moment, Jesus' plan necessitates that John provide this baptism in order to, Jesus says, fulfill all righteousness. I think that this is cool. I, um, I think that it's kind of like, it's an example that you see all throughout the Bible that God uses broken people who are willing to do his will to further his plan. John here recognizes that he's broken and that he's, he's messed up and he needs salvation. And he says, Jesus, this, this is not what I, ex- I expected you to ask me to do. Uh, I, need, I need to be baptized by you. And that was good for him to do. But Jesus says, listen, I know, but you need to do this for me right now. I think that it's cool that you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. And that's, just, that's kind of like a footnote to the rest of this whole sermon. But I, th- I thought that that was neat. The fact that John gets to be involved here, even though he, he's, he's, he recognizes his humble state in front of Jesus. And yet Jesus says, you know what? You're going to be a part of this. I want you to baptize me. That's cool that, that John the Baptist gets involved. And, and, and the reason that that's cool is because that's not just something that applies to John the Baptist. That applied to people in the Old Testament. It applies to us now. Like the fact that the church is able to go out and preach to other people and be a means of salvation in the sense that we bring the message, that's cool. So there's a connection here. And, and it's, it's cool to see God taking broken and ugly things to do amazing things. Um, I've heard it. I don't know if it's just, I don't know if several people have heard and said this or where I got this from. Um, but one of my favorite quotes is God uses uh, crooked sticks to make straight lines. Like the guys that, there's a little bit wrong with them, but in the end, it points towards God. So John is one of those. So there is a question here, though, of why would Jesus need to get baptized? Why would he need to participate in this cleansing He did not need to be cleansed. It's a good question. He was sinless. So, again, John's preaching this message of repent, turn to God, and be baptized, showing that that you are, in a sense, putting yourself to death, you're washing away your sins, you're turning to God, you're coming back a new person. Why would Jesus need to do that? Does anybody have any suggestions? I think that's one of them, to set an example. For who? For who, sorry. For us, for the church, yes. So I think that that's one of them. I think that there are more reasons, though. Anybody have any guesses? I've got a list, so it's like... It's part of God's plan. That's a good answer. <laughs> it's part of God's plan, yeah. Huh? On behalf of others? Yes. 
Yes, on behalf of others who couldn't. When you say who couldn't, what do you mean? I had not put that on my list, but I think that we could add that to the list. Like, Jesus fulfills the requirements even when we can't. That's a good answer. That's my wife, everybody. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know. Yeah, I'm making a list. Oftentimes we do hash out the points of these. That's a good one. He completes everything that we need for salvation. But why, why was this necessary for salvation? Leading from that. Like, if, if this is a necessity, something that we need to do, and, and he does that for us, why is it a necessity? We do? Yes. So, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Um, because it's a symbol of repentance for, for us. Like, he's, he's laying it down, and, if, and, and he's fulfilling that requirement for us, I guess. Um, so, the things that I had written down, and, and the first one I think is the biggest one that I wrote down, um, to confess corporate sin on behalf of Israel and mankind. So, Jesus is not sinful. He doesn't need this in the sense that he needs to repent for everybody else. Or that he doesn't need to repent for himself, sorry. But he's, he's taking on his humanity in a sense. Like, he is identifying with humanity and saying that humanity needs this. Humanity needs to repent of this, of their sin. And so he's fulfilling that requirement for us. And, and you see precedent for this in a couple of places throughout the Bible where, where you'll see leaders who get up in front of, of, of God, essentially, and they'll say, because of something else that has happened in the nation, they'll say, we have sinned. I am broken over this. And I'm going to submit. I'm going to pray. I'm going to beg for repentance because of this sin that exists in Israel. You see this in the Old Testament. Um, there are a couple of instances in particular around Ezra and Nehemiah's time. Uh, in Ezra 2, verses 3, uh, sorry, Ezra 9, verse 2 and 3. Um, I'm not going to go read it, but he goes before God and he's broken. He's tearing his clothes. He's laying out on the floor, not because he did something wrong, but because Israel was in a state where they needed to be broken. And so he does that. And, and you see that a couple of places. So this is kind of what Jesus is doing. On behalf of the corporate sin of humanity, he's identifying with humanity, and he's saying we need to repent as, as humans. Not himself, but on, on behalf of everybody else. Another thing that he was doing to accomplish God's mission, we already said that, and advance God's work in the world. So yeah, that was part of his, God's plan for redemption. Another one was to inaugurate his public ministry to bring the message of salvation to all people. Again, to inaugurate his public ministry, to bring the message of salvation to all people. So up until this point, um, we have not heard from Jesus much. Like the last thing we heard from him, he was a kid in Matthew's gospel. But now he's coming onto the scene, he's getting baptized, and we'll, we'll, we'll read more here in just a second about that. Um, also to show support maybe for John's ministry. John's out here prophesying, saying get ready. And this is a way of like, giving authority to John's ministry. So he's showing support, 
We've already said he's identifying with humanity and he's giving us an example to follow. Those are the things I wrote down, but all good answers. So the thing that sticks out to me in all of that list is this concept of identifying with humanity and repenting on behalf of humanity. To me, and I didn't see this in a lot of commentaries. I don't think I'm crazy to think this, though. I didn't see this in any commentaries, sorry. <laughs> but I don't think that I'm crazy to think this. Um, what I see in that kind of act is this, this demonstration and kind of like a foreshadowing of Jesus as our high priest. Because of all the roles that Jesus steps into and fulfills as part of salvation. You've got king, prophet, priest. He's promising a kingdom, but we haven't seen that realized yet. And he is a a prophet in the sense that he, he speaks God's word with authority. But here he's not really teaching. We'll see that more in a little bit. But as an act of being a priest, he is taking on the sin of everybody else and carrying that with him. So if you don't know much about um, the Old Testament priesthood, they, they had two different kinds of priests. They had uh, just like average Levitical priests, and then they had something called a high priest. And in both cases, those men would act as a mediator, as a go-between, between men and God. People would come to a priest and they would bring their offering saying, I have sinned. And then the priest would take that. And we've been reading this on Sunday nights. We're going through Leviticus. So this is kind of relevant, I guess. Um, They would take that offering and then they would would go through the steps of presenting that to God. Often very specific steps. They would wash. They would uh, prepare it just right. They would offer it exactly the way that it needed to be. They would uh, clean up afterwards the way that they were supposed to. Like very specific steps. And in a lot of cases, they are not, they're not offering repentance or, or something for their sin. Now, there is a sense in which all the priests were sinful and so they needed it themselves. But a lot of times the priests are taking somebody else's offering. So when somebody came up and said, I have sinned in this way, this is my offering. They're taking that from somebody else and they're going to God with it. And, and the high priest in particular had this role. Uh, there was something called the Day of Atonement where this happened once a year where the high priest would take an offering on behalf of the entire nation and he would go before God and he would slaughter this bull and, and offer that as a way, uh, as a sin offering for the entire nation. So Jesus, stepping into this role, recognizes he is here on behalf of everybody. He's here on behalf of the Jews. He's also here on behalf of all mankind, humanity. And so when he, when he gets baptized, it's this might be too direct of a connection, I don't know. It, it's almost like the ritual washing that a priest does when he's getting ready to take a sacrifice to God. I kind of see it that way, where he is on behalf of the entire nation going through this process to say, we, the nation, have sinned. And I am going to bring this offering to you on our behalf. I think that's cool. 
I think that that's kind of the idea of what's going on here. And it's foreshadowing at this point, because we're definitely going to get into more of that kind of talk later. Um, and you can go read in Hebrews about that. I thought about quoting Hebrews. Um, the only one that I'll quote is Hebrews 7, 20 and 20, uh, sorry, maybe just 21, um, where the Hebrews says of Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. He's quoting Psalms in that moment. But he's saying that Jesus is our priest. And I think that you get a little glimpse of that right here. Let's read uh, the other verses to finish out the chapter here. So we, let's just go ahead and read 13 through 17. We'll get the whole context again. So verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In the moment of Christ's baptism, we see an amazing event. This is something that we only see a couple of times in the Bible. <clears throat> the heavens open up, the Spirit descends toward Jesus, the Father gives his approval. This is, in one event, a picture of the Trinity. It's true, and you might have heard this before, that the Bible never actually uses the word Trinity. It's something that, it's a word that we created, Christians created, to describe this reality. So it's not used here, but it's demonstrated here. The idea that God exists in three parts. He is one God, just like the Old Testament said, existing in three persons. And we're not going to have enough time here to make this a Trinity sermon, <laughs> but that, that's a big idea. That's a big idea that's hard to comprehend. And even though you don't see the word Trinity used in the Old or New Testament, you see pictures like this of these three persons coming together in this singular moment to accomplish something. And in this case, a lot of people that I have kind of compared this to like a creative act, you see this, you see the Trinity present in creation where it talks about let us create man in our image, let us create and how the, the Trinity was active in that. And now, as we approach like this climax of history, you see that the Trinity is again present here, described in this action, bringing about redemption and salvation for the entire world. And that's a, that's a huge deal, that, that that is described here. Because there's a lot of confusion about this topic. And there's good confusion and bad confusion. Like some, some of us are just thinking, man, I don't understand this. This is, it, I like, I get the, the basic concept, but also it's, it's also too big for me to, to really comprehend. And that, that's normal. That's, that's, that's normal confusion that all of us experience, trying to comprehend God and God's existence when it is different from ours. 
But then there's a bad kind of confusion where people try to explain away some of these things. Um, and, and there's a couple that are kind of uh, revolving around this event that maybe it's worth bringing up without going into a ton of detail. But some people get the idea that in this event there was some sort of passing of spirit and that maybe Jesus somehow took on God's persona at this point in time, but he didn't have it previous to that. This is, there's this idea called adoptionism um, where, where at that moment he becomes the son of God. And then there's also the concept of modalism. I don't know if you've heard that, where God exists in different modes at different times. And some people think that he, at this time, maybe he's switching modes or something like that. Um, without getting into a ton of detail and just kind of giving a small footnote, we're going to say, that's not where we land. <laughs> um, the idea here is kind of like, Jesus is being publicly anointed. And so it's not that there's any kind of like changing of hands, changing of roles inside of this. This is just a picture of, of God, like tearing open the sky, telling the entire world, the Spirit's coming down on him, this is him, this is my son, this is the Savior. I approve this message. <laughs> like, that, that's what's going on in this moment. And, and rather than demonstrating some sort of odd changing of essence or something like that, we're gonna, what we believe is that this is, a, this is just a picture of those three working together in this redemptive act. We, you could say so much more books are written, you know? But, but we're not gonna, we'll not say any more than that. Maybe you want to discuss that in community groups. Maybe you want to come ask questions. That's fine. Um, what I think is really cool in this, at the end... The voice from heaven, God's voice talking about Jesus to Jesus. Everybody hears this voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I don't know how often we talk about the relationship between Jesus and the Father uh, or, or the Trinity in and of itself. Like it, We definitely mention it from time to time. But I think it's worth kind of just sitting there for a second and seeing this relationship. The fact that God is pleased with his son. He loves his son more than anything. He takes joy in him. Because he is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is just. He's obedient. He represents everything that the Father represents. And he's able to take joy in him. And likewise with the Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, you have this relationship that's perfect. And, and we only catch glimpses of that. It's hard for us to understand that. But they have this relationship that's perfect. And it's marked by joy and pleasure. In, in the most complete kind of way that we have a hard time even comprehending. But he, he looks down and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that it's just kind of cool to meditate on that idea. That there's this love between these two. Last week I discussed how Matthew's narrative was following a similar line as Israel's in the Old Testament. But I didn't really get to the part that I thought was really exciting about that. Um, we talked about how 
the way that Matthew has structured this, the way that Matthew has structured his, his narrative so far, really kind of mimics Israel's. We talked about how, or we, we have over the course of several weeks, talked about how Jesus and his family, they come into being, and then they escape to Egypt. And there they're incubated for a period of time. And then they're called back to Palestine, to Israel, by God. Then here we're picking up in the wilderness, where John the Baptist is calling people to repent and turn to God's covenant. And now Jesus enters the narrative, and he's beginning his role as priest. Like, all of that mimics what's going on in the Old Testament. And what, what I think Matthew is kind of putting between the lines is the idea that Jesus is about to start a new exodus. Like, or, or that he is, he's already in process. He's doing this. He's bringing redemption for these people. He is the leader of a new and better exodus. He is the Son of God, which is, in some places, the way that Adam is talked about as being God's Son, like God's first creation. Jesus is now coming, and he's taking on that role, being the Son of God now. And he is fulfilling everything that Adam and Abraham and Jacob and all these people were meant to fulfill and he's rewriting the narrative in this really, in a perfect, really cool way that invites us now, like everybody, to, to be involved. And so that it's not just about the Jews anymore. Now he's, he's rewriting this for everybody. And in this event, in baptism, we are able to participate in this. We have, in a sense, a unity with Christ in this same baptism. And so that's why baptism is important for us. That's why we get baptized, is to identify with Christ, to say we're laying it down, we're, re, we're, we're starting the narrative over, we're being born as different people. We're following his exodus. We're following his redemption. Galatians talks about baptism in a way that I think is really helpful. If you, can, you can write this down. I'm going to read through it uh, if you want to turn there. It's Galatians 3. I'll start in verse 26. Paul says to the Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all of you, uh, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I'm going to jump forward a little bit to chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
sins. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So in baptism, Christ identifies with humanity. In our baptism, we identify with Christ. And when we come up out of the water, God is able to look on us and call us his kids. He's able to call us one of his children. And the righteousness that was fulfilled in Christ's work is imparted to us when we follow in his baptism. And so being reconciled to God through Christ, we can hear the words, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. We get to hear that. It calls us in Galatians, heirs, fellow heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. That's awesome. That's a big thought. And so, I hope that, that that kind of expands our horizon of thinking of, like, of, of, the, of what baptism is and why we baptize and, and what it means and what it does for us. Paul says that we're heirs according to the promise because of this with Christ. Let's pray.